0: Hi and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Each week we bring you the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and insider advice, followed by farm chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues while sampling a beer, Andrew's favorite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report.
1: Welcome to the Market Report, What follows is my thoughts or gut instincts of what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decisions to trade is yours. Market report this week is recorded a little early. So this is for week commencing the 9th of December 2019. I'm going to be on my way to the uh, London Bourse on Friday, which is where it's got in the way, uh, where we test lots of beers uh, with a view to our podcast later. Uh, the key issue of a bourse I want to talk about first is it gets the opportunity to put traders together face to face if you remember last year we went to the bourse and I, I think that's when I recorded the small robot company and largely traders pretend to each other that they've done brilliantly well they got nothing wrong at all in the season the farmers love them best and why the other people are in business we've got no idea it's just kind of a game of brinksmanship and see who can P the furthest, and um, yeah, it's 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 no different to being at your local rugby club to a large degree on a Saturday about six thirty in the evening after your team has won. But there is some sense that comes out of it, and there are some good friendships that are made within the industry. And in the end, the the key thing that holds probably the trade together and enables things to actually happen is trust, friendship, and people working together. So, all of the brinksmanship, all of the pretending that you're in charge. In the end, works a lot less well than people actually helping each other and helping to fill boats and 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 doing each other favors. And largely, a boss brings people together to do that. We 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 love them and we we attend them as much as we possibly can. So, um, well done to Brad and his team for organising it again. And I hope it's a fully fully attended, well attended event. So, moving on to the market, I'm guessing six five days in advance. Um, I don't think much is going to change. At the moment, I think old crop wheat prices are under pressure, actually. The pre-Christmas bargains uh, or high prices that have been paid to fill boats, I don't think will necessarily be there after Christmas. And if they are, they won't be there for very long. Um, the bubble has to burst because there is enough wheat in the system. So it, it, eventually, something's going to give. Old crop is not competitive at the moment. We are not expert any fresh tonnage the boats we're filling are going to Belfast which stays in the United Kingdom which is not uh, export so yeah I I think somewhere along the line the price of feed wheat old crop if nothing else happens is going to go down Um, we have an election coming up as we know Uh, And at the moment, at time of recording, the pound is very firm and the anticipation is that Boris Johnson uh, will be the prime minister with the bigger majority, which will give him the golden opportunity to leave on WTO terms in December 20, having pretended he can't get on with the Europeans for a deal. Bitter and twisted Remainer. Um, (laughs) Moving out of that one again, uh, back to feed wheat values. 140x deck is going to be, I think, the same for Jan. Um, new crop, on the other hand, probably will come down a bit in sentiment. There has been some more activity on drilling, as predicted um, by the wise old sage. The the, the the dry weather has seen more beet come out the ground, and even today we were delivering seed out to somebody uh, who said right I'm going to go I've got the chance it's been dry for at least four minutes so we're going to we're going to plant so another field of uh, Kerin goes in which is a bit less spring barley so yeah that's uh, I expect that to continue to happen as long as it stays mildly dry feed barley values about 121 for early jan movement nothing much happening on that don't see much change uh, and oilseed rate is still floating around the, the 320 mark. The strong pound is not helping that at all. So, underlyingly, old crop is not very special and old crop feed wheat, I think, is, is looking slightly vulnerable at the moment. And as I've said previously, the spread between old and new crop has got to move out to make it worthwhile. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours.
0: Wealth management company Bruin Dolphin has been helping families for many years to accumulate, grow and protect their money to cope with a changing financial climate. Their services range from bespoke investment solutions to retirement planning and tax-efficient investing across their 32 offices. In East Anglia they have offices in Norwich, Ipswich and Cambridge. If you would like to know more, call Aidan Watts on 01603 733 300. Or look online for Bruin Dolphin. Capital at risk, tax treatment depends on individual circumstances and can change. Bruin Dolphin is authorised and regulated by the FCA. And now it's time for Farm Chat.
1: Today, uh, Josh and I are with Lizzie Emmett. Now, Lizzie, uh, you work for an organisation with a particularly silly name, so just talk me through all those initials and what does it actually stand out for?
2: <laughs> yeah, so it stands for the Upper Wensum Cluster Farm Group, but the wee, just the short name, the easy name is Wensum Farmers. Yeah. Wensum
1: Farmers it is. So, now, you uh, are employed by, by a group of 21 farms?
2: It's actually expanded now. So Hmm. luckily we've expanded. So now we're 24 farmers.
1: Okay. Yep. And how did you, you made that happen? You said, right, here I am. Or did they say, right, we, we, we got together, we want somebody, and you're the, you're the person who applied?
2: Yeah, exactly. So the second one. So essentially, they, the project actually began running in 2015. Mm-hmm. But about three years in, um, they felt like it had really started to fade. There wasn't much energy anymore. Um, and they felt like, we want to come together and don't, not to let it die. So essentially, they, they spoke to a few people. And the, the consensus was, you need an advisor that works for you for Mm -hmm. your set of objectives. So they came together, they clubbed money in, and I was interviewed by farmers, and I'm employed by farmers.
1: Okay, and so their objective, what do you bring to the party?
2: So essentially, uh, I'm an advisor to them, and our main priorities are water quality and biodiversity. So I work with them one-to-one and as a group to meet those objectives.
1: And the the goal being you don't get fined, or the goal being that you can possibly be in the right place should farm payments turn in a different direction?
2: Yeah, I mean, so essentially we, we have so many different projects that we do, but I'd say that the, the main sort of the role I have becoming more and more as I go on is preparing them for a post-Brexit world Yeah, and preparing them for a post-BPS world mm-hmm. and getting them in the right position for Elm, the environmental land management.
1: Okay. That so, is
2: my main role.
1: And so, so where's your reference points? How do you... Go in a direction. What if you if if something you know you can't have every original thought on this? We had Jake fines on a few weeks ago. Do you reference him or have you got a group of you that kind of talk this subject regularly and then bring it back to farms?
2: Yeah. So we have a a set of objectives that we we get a small amount of funding from Natural England. Mm -hmm. So we have a a bit like a countryside stewardship scheme, but we have it for uh, the whole group. So we have a set of objectives that we work for for that. But on the the bigger picture, essentially the the spine of the group is the Wensum, and we've got water. Quality issues on the Wensum, okay. particularly being phosphate and nitrates. So, we know that there's a paper sitting in the government, they want to grass over 20,000 hectares of the Wensum Valley, which would encompass all of our farms. Right. So, essentially, my job has now actually become working with the Environment Agency, Natural England, working with DEFRA as to see if a bottom up farmer approach can improve water quality and we won't get grassed over.
1: Okay, and, and one assumes the argument of just grassing it over means you can't put cows on there anymore by the sound of it?
2: They haven't actually given us the specifics because we haven't got to that stage yet, but it, it wouldn't work and it's not a solution that we want. No. Um, essentially, what they're doing is, is they've created a model of where the proportionment comes from and agriculture, being livestock and arable, is only thirty percent of phosphate mm-hmm. proportionate to the river. The rest is like sewage treatment works, industry, highways.
1: Okay, that's quite quite reassuring, actually. It's very gives. reassuring, yeah. and it,
2: and if we were to grass over the whole of the Wensum, we'd it would still make that get difference, yeah. exactly.
1: That's great. I mean, that that piece of knowledge. But where my point is, where what reference point do you go to to gain further information? I mean, within your farmer group, they're looking to you. Who's your mentors? Who do you research with?
2: Um, so a whole range of different people Um, so I have a a Natural England advisor who for the first year was basically there as a bit of a mentor Mm -hmm. so if it's anything to do with countryside stewardship and their agreements, if I needed to then I could go to him, Um, I go to various different conferences, I also lean back a lot on my degree and my home farm experience I did all the applications for the home farm Um, and to be honest the great bit about my job is that I get to meet so many different interesting people so just yesterday I was with the um, chairman of the Hedge laying Society. So I spent a day with him learning how to lay hedges and all the different techniques and I can bring that back to my farmers. So, my so are job... you actually going to
1: be doing the, the hedge laying?
2: Yeah, in April, I'm going to help him for another two days. So my, my absolute ethos is if I'm going to help my farmers, I need to understand everything, whether that be cover cropping, mint till, using a certain drill. So I have to have practical experience to be able to then help them?
1: I know I just the hedge for you to practice on. Okay. It's <laughs> not in the Wenson Valley. Okay. Just, you know, I I, I, mean, that's we're going off track here slightly <laughs> here, but hedge laying is is, a, is an art, and if done really Absolutely. well, it, it makes such a fantastic difference to how the place looks and then the development of the hedge beyond that, doesn't it? But Absolutely. So have you got to get a whole load of tools especially for that job then?
2: Um, not necessarily tools, it is an art because there's a skill to it. Um, what was interesting is understanding from him about, because basically in Norfolk we're not great at hedge laying. Um, we've sort of lost that art because we, we're an arable county um, whereas if you go to somewhere like Leicestershire, you know, they, they really keep it alive. Mm. So Essentially, it's about the skill. It's about the art. It's learning, you know, what age of hedge to go for, and then there's different styles according to different counties. So Northumbria is very, very different to Leicestershire. Okay. Um, and but it, the biodiversity enhancement is is incredible. Absolutely,
1: so, but you know, is there a Norfolk style?
2: No, that's the sad thing. So yes, I said to him.
1: The Lizzie Emmett style.
2: There you go. Maybe. <laughs> You go painting that?
1: Yeah, I should. What well, depends how how good they even make it like look, look like battlements or I something. I need to
2: refine. I need to refine it, don't I? Then I could get it painted. Yeah.
1: So that I mean, and, and the home farm is part of the group that you, you, you that you were talking about.
2: No, it's not. So home farm is uh, West Norfolk. Okay. Um, so you no, know, it's way out of the catchment. But I've learned a huge amount from the home farm. Farm's daughter, mm-hmm. Norfolk-born and bred. Uh, my parents strong and, on the arm, thick in the head. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's a run. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I've learned a lot from my parents as well. Yeah. Uh, they've given me a really good grounding. You know, my dad's a sheep and beef farmer, yeah. and my mum obviously doing all the communication side of things. Mm-hmm. So, give me a good grounding.
1: Yeah, your mum is a, is a journalist. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she is. Yeah, so we thought you would be in for roasting today. <laughs> so, the fundamentals of, of making sure the river isn't got hasn't got phosphate in it. The, the, it's is it about soil health? Primarily, and and applying better spec, non leaching. You know, what what is what exactly the process that you can do on the bit that we influence? How can we make it not be grass and be cereals? I need it to be cereals.
2: Yeah. Okay. So uh, the way I assist the farmers, the first thing is I do. uh, It sounds a bit boring. It's an ADAS. program with them called Farm Scoper which first identifies the amount of farm pollutant losses that they would be getting from their business in terms of phosphate and nitrates according to their soil type okay. and according to like how much muck they're bringing into the rotation um, whether they got legumes with are spring cropping things like that that's the first instance so this
1: is box ticking about right he had legumes he has his farm yabaneur he he has this he doesn't have that he does have this and, and that gives you a probability
2: exactly it gives you it gives me a kilogram per hectare of what pollutant they would get from that business. The next thing is I run then in, whether they're in countryside stewardship, so whether, for example, they've got margins around all of their fields, mm-hmm. whether they've got buffer strips, whether they're silt trapping, whether they're using till so there's not too much inversion of the soil. So that's the next stage of it. I can then rerun it, and then I get a lower calculation. And,
1: and who who makes the decree that this is, the numbers that come out at the bottom, if you like, yep. someone must have done research on saying, if I put this in here, and we have all of these bits that add to it that is the result is that a measured like here's a drip out the bottom of a pot or is it how does it work it's
2: a model and it's base ADAS created it so okay. ADAS essentially um, took a lot of model farms it's based also down in Wessex Water they essentially like created the program with ADAS okay. so it is a model but it's very very accurate and essentially we have a target given to us by the Environment Agency and, and I can say safely that all my farms are meeting the target okay. which I can then feed back to the government and to so say here we go we want to we want to improve the water quality but there's sort of a next stage to it then if obviously I've got some high risk crops on a high risk field so i.e.
1: What's a high risk crop?
2: Potatoes. Potatoes, maize, sugar beets anything like that that's with a high risk soil type so i.e. your lighter soils and if you've got furrows for example going down a slope with the rains that we have been getting we sort of get dry periods and then very very heavy bursts you are likely to get some soil movement so when you tend to get a high risk crop with a high risk field you are going to get movement now. Phosphate binds to soil particles, so if you are going to get soil movement. But that's, the, that
1: isn't that. I mean, forgive me. Sorry. Right. The the you know we all should know about potatoes not being running up and down the hill. They should be going across it to stop water running off. Is that not
2: N- not really? Because I mean, I've got guys that growers that they don't want to put it the other way because essentially when they irrigate the field gets you wet because they want that. Then want to be able to lift in maybe good to wet conditions so i understand from their management point of view but my idea and what i've got to do is make sure that field is protected as much as possible and if it is reaching such a high risk ideally we can't have potatoes on that field
1: okay so you're able to say look guys the squad the whole of the rest of the uwfcgbl is going to go stop, you can't have it.
2: Yeah and then the next stage is we work with uh, the Rivers Trust so if we need to for example put a silt trap in, so a silt trap is essentially a big pond that collects silt.
1: So you build a bank at the bottom of the field?
2: Uh, More of a pond with a bank. Okay. All of the silt that is going to move can go into there and then it can be dug out and put back onto the field and it stops it going to watercourses. So then that's sort of the next stage. Um, And when you
1: you get biblical rain like we've had this autumn then there's come a point when it just... The the silt bank goes. I've had enough, and just gives way, and along goes the water. Because it's been it has been awesome this autumn the the dry leading up to the deluge
2: yeah this has been a really difficult year some mm-hmm. silt traps have been absolutely brilliant and when they're designed you know they're designed by engineers so they're for example william morfett's that's a good name drop mm-hmm. you know they will design it so that it is it can cope with that but the the next stage to that is we have now as a group we know that water quality is so important and that we have to report back to defra that we are doing well that we've actually bought our own water quality monitoring kit
1: good yeah so you should
2: so we're now starting to uh, monitor, you know, above and below sewage treatment works, for example, uh, yeah. tributaries before they go into the main body. Yeah. So there's kind of a whole different yeah. range. Because this,
1: this is this, this point about the sewage, you know, if you get a, a deluge of water and then there's a whole lot of sewage, It's more sewage coming back out into the system, going into the river than normal. because, of, And ev- everyone's going to farm a bash because it's the favourite thing to do. That's easy. It's all their fault. By having that proof...
2: Exactly. Essentially, you know, a lot of what the group is about is being proud of what we are doing, taking control of what we are doing, and then feeding back information and examples of how we're tackling it. And, and we feel like that is the way forward, especially bearing in mind that Elm's going to be payments on results and polluter Pays.
1: Absolutely. In, within your group, you know, you, you've got some tough individuals. I know some of the guys in your group um, You know, if they're they're happy, if things are going their way, they're not so happy if things aren't going their way. You can't, have suppose, in that field, mate, unless you do this, this, or this. How do you manage that?
2: Essentially, the beauty (laughs) of my job is that all of my farmers are so different. Mm -hmm. But always the other beauty of it is that I get to spend... I'm employed nearly full time, so Mm -hmm. I get to spend a lot of time with them one-to-one. The more time you spend with them the better. And I've got one really good example of one of my most commercial farmers. You know, he, he really knows how to make money. And I've spent a lot of time with him. And this summer, not only has he got two silt traps installed, which are working brilliantly, but he's restored eight ponds. You've got, to, you've got to work with them. But my job is to inspire and equip. I've got to inspire them in the first place and say why you should be doing this, how you can, how, you, how it will benefit you, and then equip them with the knowledge the resources the grants if available to then go and do so it. So how
1: did he how can he be how can he commercially gain out of having silt traps?
2: Well, so essentially he doesn't want to lose the, the topsoil anyway. Okay. So for him that is good because he yeah, can actually yeah, dig it out, yeah, put it back it. onto the field. The other thing is moving forward, he realizes that in the wensum, if we don 't get our act together, we could be facing either the grassing over ban or we could be facing a um, phosphate or nitrate uh, cap, yeah. so for example, three hundred meters away from the river, you cannot apply x amount so and I have to spend time with them to explain. The scenario and what we're going towards, then they start to listen. Then they start to understand that the soil is so important. Mm. They've got they've got to invest in it and they've got to look after it. The biggest asset on their farm, and any commercial farmer will see that. Is is
1: there not a you know his, history? You know, the last forty years, fifty years of of inputs is going to take a period of time to work its way through. Is it not? So you're you're going to the readings that are coming off are not necessarily going to be immediately relating to this year's production or last year's production.
2: Yeah, so that's a really interesting point. So I've done a lot of research with the UEA. I've worked quite closely with the UEA on this. Um, so essentially, uh, nitrates leach through the subsoil. Yeah. So when it rains, and if, particularly if you've got gravel subsoil, you're likely to get movement through we're finding we've got legacy of nitrates because yeah. obviously year on year you're applying a certain amount of rate. So we do have legacy nitrates. Phosphates, they do react quite differently because they bind to soil particles. Yeah. So you're more likely to get something that was put on in a previous season. You're less likely to yeah. get a legacy of the phosphates. Okay. So that's why we're targeting the two together. Okay. And because the way when glaciers move through the wensum historically, there's a lot of gravel subsoil. So when the nitrates move through the first sort of few meters, they just whoosh go straight through. So that, and we don't want that. We want to be able to keep it within the subsoil, which is why we're cover cropping.
1: Is the Wensum a chalk-based river?
2: Yeah, yeah. Which is very, very. Uh, there's more chalk uh, bed rivers in in Norfolk. Three. Uh, but it's it's, it's, fa- six it's in amazing. The
1: Ali Cargill told us this.
2: And 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 more across the whole world, you know, that's why they're so special.
1: Yeah. So with this awareness of Soil health, and with this awareness of of look, you could just be making it, and what are you going to do with just grass or rewilding or whatever? Unless they suddenly say, "Here's five thousand pounds an acre just for having it rewilded," then I guess we can all rewild like mad and go and do something else, can't we? But um, the, the the farmer making a commercial decision, he doesn't know yet, does he? What the what the plans are going to be? Elms coming in or whatever? The, the, we don't absolutely know. The next government. Make up. We we have a good guess of what it's going to be, but we don't know whether they're going to be committed to agriculture or or not. Whether we're just going to sell them down the river. How do you, you know, is there going to be a moment in in six months' time when the government that's been elected goes, ah, right, this is what we're going to do. And all of a sudden, your work is kind of like, well, there's no money in it, boys. Let's forget it. Is that, is, that, is that a worry, or?
2: Yeah, it definitely is a worry. Um, I think we've, now that we are quite nationally recognised as a cluster group, we get quite a lot of attention. So, um, and I've spoken to various different people about what our priorities should be going forward, and spoken to the farmers about what their priorities should be for. That's the beauty of a farmer-led group, mm-hmm. and it keeps coming back. Whoever I speak to, they keep coming back to the 25-year plan that the government put out. 'Cause whatever um, you know, environmental land management scene they, they create, it will have to relate back To the 25 year plan and within that they very much talk about water quality air quality biodiversity so all the things that we're doing at the moment so we've used that as a steer on what the priorities should be and with the payment by results based idea we're trying to collate all the evidence of species and how we're doing in terms of water quality to prepare us for when that scheme becomes available yeah okay
1: and and in the meantime how do you see the future how do you see that that if they if they declare that cereals are not allowed to be grown where would that leave you you still got a job to do
2: i think essentially the the good thing is that i see a really good future because the farmers luckily have just decided that they want to all chip in a pound a hectare which is brilliant, which has extended my contract, so they no, think it's I, working I have
1: no doubt that you, I, absolutely the, 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 the movement you've got again, with your group is expanding, there's definitely've there's, people have been talking about it you know it's it's doing very, very well, but it's it's something that the, the fear I have is is commercially farmers will come to a point where government in the end decides what they do and and decides whether they produce food or whether they don't, and they've done a very good job at it they've done too good a job. The government might just decide that, in fact, food needs to be cheap, we'll import it, and the UK Mm. will just tick a green box and not produce stuff anymore.
2: Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. I think Mm. my advice to my guys is essentially we know that there is going to be an element of elms, and we know that people do care about the environment, and particularly in the Wensum, it's such a beautiful area, Mm. it needs to be looked after, it needs to be cherished. I am advising them to put as much of land as possible into those types of schemes, whether that be wild bird mixes, whether that be hedgerow management, because certainly with the last year, hopefully, a round of countryside stewardship, that's a guaranteed income for a few years. I think it's really difficult making money out of commodity crops and commodity markets. It's incredibly difficult, and a lot of the time I think they get more benefit you know, personally, out of seeing the benefit from the countryside stewardship that they're doing. So I think going oh, forward. it's prettier
1: and people come and enjoy it. I mean, you know, obviously I've got a very vested interest in grain still being grown. It's it's tough in producing, it's tough in trading it, it's tough across the board. What we don't want to do is export that production completely to another country we're kind of selling a a a, a production issue in the UK down the river again
2: yeah no I don't think it's going to be that for example the wensum is just totally conservation I think they'll always be commodity crops what they're going to hone down on is the high risk crops so your maize your potatoes your sugar beet that's where the pressure is going to come down and it's not down on all fields as well I must be clear that I've seen potato fields sugar beet fields that have been lefted and there isn't that much soil damage and there isn't that much soil movement it's picking the right fields and having the right stewardship as a whole package that's the key so I don't think there's a fear of of not being able to grow them in this area we have some fantastic soils for example for potatoes but it's just ensuring that you're doing everything you can ticking those boxes and making sure you're getting an income from countryside stewardship and I think we can see that continuing.
1: Do you have to work with with agronomists at each individual farm as well?
2: Yeah. So I know some of the agronomists um, and, for example, with the farm scoper, I work with them to work out some of the calculations because some of them are like variable rate, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be honest, all of them have good relationships with the farmers and I have good relationships then. It's all about working together. I definitely feel like there is a change towards a more low input system mm-hmm. and cutting costs. But th- that's not everywhere, and I know the sugar beet growers really needed a lot of the insecticides for the aphid pressure. You know, this season. Absolutely. So I think there's a place for it, but it, where we can save and where we can cut back, that is the sustainable route. Yeah,
1: you, I mean, the the, the dynamic of an agronomist is he is paid by sales in a lot of cases some are some paid by acre which is a different dynamic isn't it if 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 he's paid by acre his motivation is not to make a sale and therefore there's no conflict and they're going to be working happily with you but i can see a bit of a conflict with that that girl's on the farm again telling you to do something.
2: I don't think it necessarily happens like that I mean the cases where I've seen it is for example we do a lot of pond restoration so we've done 23 ponds this year which okay. is absolutely fantastic um, and for example I've seen. That, so do
1: you actually like dig them out completely don't go through the clay base or do you put a lining in or what do you do?
2: Yeah so traditionally they're all mar pits yep. so obviously historically they would actually dig them yep. out for fertiliser yep. so there is a natural base to them but it's not actually like a marl it's actually a really deep black almost like a peat yeah. and that's okay. where all the dormant seeds are and they can lay dormant for about 100 years these okay. vegetation species so you what you dig back to that you're not digging back any lower than that and there is a natural seal below that Okay, okay. so that's why you need someone that's skilled to do the digging yeah. and essentially what you're taking out is over time most Norfolk ponds are very overgrown yep. so they get a lot of leaf litter, decaying yep. branches, things like that so that's very nutrient rich, it's a bit like a hummus on a, on a rainforest so floor what, can you
1: use that on the field, take it up and brew?
2: Yeah, so a lot of people, they dig it out, so we do this in about September time put it onto the stubble and uh, use it you know, plough it in Um, so yeah we've been doing a lot of uh, pond restoration and for example you get an incredible amount of insect bursts from the ponds which feed obviously a lot of bird species great for the gray partridge etc etc so what i have seen is some of my landowners requesting that for example the sprayer leaves a six meter buffer near to the pond or near to the margin so commercial commercial right in the centre and leave that sort of middle ground six-metre mark. So that, I think there is compromise wherever you look.
1: How come the insect burst? How does, does that happen? Because you, you dug it out, you've taken out all the vegetation, you've then got a base. Again, we are going off on a track here, but you've got That's me okay. interested too. So.
2: It is. It's, I love ponds. Ponds are just the most amazing thing. Um, so essentially, and did you know, there's more ponds in Norfolk than any other county? Huh. fun fact another, you.
1: another thing to brag about
2: exactly it's all about Norfolk <laughs> so essentially what you're doing is like I said you're digging it out you're digging out that nutrient layer and you also might have some like uh, pollution agrochemical pollution in there yep. as well dig it out you're revealing those dormant seeds the following spring they will come through
1: and those seeds would be what water plants
2: yeah so for example bulrushes water crowfoot all your different oh, types okay. of ponds weeds
1: ah, right. and
2: they lay dormant for up to 100 years that's the fascinating bit
1: and you can't go through the base of it so it drains away forever you know you can't the man on the is a bit overzealous and goes a bit too deep you
2: Oops. have to be more careful with clay uh, based ponds not so much but in, we don't have no. we don't tend to have clay based ponds okay. the interesting thing is that a lot of our ponds are actually aquifer and groundwater fed so it's not a, yeah, no, it's okay, not a yeah, seal yeah, yeah. like like an actual lining so obviously when you get the rains you will notice them fill so it is actually linked to the aquifer right underneath the ground and that is why it's linked to for example rainfall okay. so it's not about digging necessarily you don't want to dig too deep no, okay, because you don't I, want to I, dig I, the I, dormant I, seeds I, there's out there's lots the of bit. knowledge
1: in this one chaps i you're all really listening
2: so these these vegetation species will come through and essentially the the water quality will have improved so you get larvae species you're getting your dragonflies hunting for insects the fascinating bit is different ponds have different insect bursts at different times. So, okay. bird species will move around ponds hunting for food at different times. That's a fascinating do bit. You,
1: do you come back and talk about this at the sort of tea table and people start yawning because you're oh, you're never.
2: Oh. I talk about this to my boyfriend, Ben, and I think he just falls asleep. Does he? I think he does. We I think he wish I'd stop.
1: We know Ben. He wouldn't fall asleep. <laughs> he'd. he'd be so focused on that. <laughs> I'm very conscious that uh, I've been hogging the microphone and Josh hasn't asked any questions. You've actually got me, you know... Um, but we're such fascinated. a crucial
2: area in Norfolk, particularly for like great crested newt and crucian carp. You know, these are really rare species that are under under threat. And again, this is what we're doing in the group: is we are enhancing the biodiversity, but we are surveying, getting the evidence to pass to the government, to promote the group, saying we know what we're doing and we're doing a fantastic job of okay. it.
1: Okay, and, and and with that in mind, experience a proof of of a, of a much greater performance. Does that take you to um, a place where you, you, you negotiate with the government when they say, well, right, we're going to close all this stuff, down? say, no, we've got this, this and this. You need to do these things and farmers need to be rewarded for it.
2: Absolutely. So the most exciting bit about my job is now I'm very closely working with DEFRA colleagues about a pollution plan for the Wensum. So that's the most exciting thing for me is they have said to me and to my colleagues we are getting closer and closer to grassing over and I've said to them no let's come up with a plan with Natural England with the Environment Agency and let's prove that a bottom-up approach working with the farmers. I know the soil types, they know the soil types, let's do it together and we with our water quality monitoring kit can prove that we can make a difference. And
1: have you got proof of that you've got you know you've got encouraging signs from them listening
2: yeah absolutely they they would prefer that approach and again I said earlier we're becoming sort of nationally interest now because people like the idea of farmers working together and you get a much better ethic you get much better results when you work on a landscape scale we're 10,000 hectares that is so much more impressive than just one farm on its own and believe me People listen when you've got 24 farmers and 10,000 hectares.
1: Lizzie, I, I think you're like a stick of dynamite. I think they listen because you're so full of absolute enthusiasm for the subject and knowledge. It's it's infectious. You know, I, I've been enthralled with this. I mean, it's completely sucked me in. And, and so it's you know, don't. Yes, your farmers are, are a handy hunt bunch to stand behind you if someone needs to be punched because they can look sort of threatening. But you, as a spokesperson, I'm very confident. Uh, Doing a very good job.
2: Well, I mean, I find it is the best job in the world, and I've had some. No, no, I've got. Oh, you've got the best job. I have, yeah. But I had an absolute highlight this year with one of one of my most commercial farmers said, "I am so much more interested in conservation now after you started," and that is one of those moments where you are like, yes.
1: Well, that's, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm with him. Well, with that, I apologise, Josh, for not getting our word in edgeways. No worries. <laughs> Same as usual, eh? Yeah. And uh, Lizzie, thank you so much for coming in. It's been fascinating.
0: You're welcome. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they're released. Jew and Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts. We can supply you with the best strategies to help you achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Call now on 01263-731-550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. Or follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by Tin Shed Productions in conjunction with East Coast Design Studio.